Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. speak to us about wisdom. Chris has been a great friend to us whilst we've been without a pastor. Um, he led Lim uh, Baptist Church um, and retired about five years ago. He used to be part of this congregation and then went to plant a church at Hazel Grove. And during the two years when we weren't, um, where, where we were without a minister, Chris has come to preach um, a few times. And in the background, has also given the leadership team a real level of support. So we're so grateful for all that you've done for us, Chris. And uh, can I just invite you now to come give us the word? Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you this morning. I'm conscious that uh, you're planning shorter services during the summer months, and when Will invited me to come and preach a couple of weeks ago, he said, um, if you can try and limit your sermon to 20 minutes. Um, Isn't it great to have the gift of optimism? (laughs) Uh, He knows me too well, but I'll do my best. As Stephanie said, we're looking at, uh, you've been looking at the book of James, and this morning my task is to, to help you through chapter 4, but in order to set that into context, I want to read the closing verses of chapter 3. So if you have Bibles with you and you want to follow, if you'd like to turn to James chapter 3, and we'll start reading at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. 
Father, as we come to look at this passage this morning, we ask afresh that you will open the eyes and minds of the understanding. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to take on board everything that you're saying to us and to respond by action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my most recent regrets is that I wasn't able to attend the funeral and thanksgiving service for a dear friend of mine, uh, Alan Entwistle. That service took place here a couple of weeks ago. Alan was, as I say, a great friend. He was a great supporter of us when we started the church at Hazel Grove. I wasn't here, but I heard that during the course of that service there were a number of very heartwarming and inspirational tributes given to him. Uh, Well-deserved, I'm sure. Tributes at Christian funerals in particular can be very inspiring. They can be encouraging. They can be challenging. They can spur us on to walk with God. One example that I read recently was of uh, a man who was asked to write a tribute following the death of one of his friends who had proved himself to be a very faithful and uh, impressive Christian. This is what he wrote. He had rocketed upward from a prestigious Oxford scholarship to a spectacular academic career to a prominent national platform. But the more he progressed upwards, the more he gradually matured downwards. As far as success is defined, he had chosen to make himself irrelevant. And I was struck by those words. He gradually matured downwards. Of course, those words may seem particularly odd in a culture where, which is often characterized by the desire to be upwardly mobile. We're always looking to progress, going up one step higher on any particular ladder, be that home ownership or careers. We have a tendency to be ambitious Nothing necessarily wrong with that. We have a tendency to want to get on in life. There is that continual journey of self-improvement. But this idea of downward mobility, doesn't it fit in really well with what Jesus said? And if we are going to be true disciples of Jesus, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross and follow him. Or the words of John the Baptist talking about Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. And for James, the overriding hallmark that ought to characterize the Christian is this idea of maturing downwards. Growing into the likeness of Jesus is really a case of being downwardly mobile. As we shall discover, it's about getting rid of selfish ambition and getting rid of envy and adopting a spirit of true humility. I'm sure you will be aware that all through this epistle, James has been giving us all kinds of tests of living true faith. How do I know that my faith is genuine? What are the hallmarks? What are the benchmarks of true faith? Just to recap, the first test was how do you respond to trials? 
Do you welcome them as stepping stones to maturity, or do you discover that they seem to be more like stumbling blocks to growth? Then there was how you react to the Word of God. Do you receive it and obey it? Are you doers of the Word and not hearers only? How do you respond to people in need? Do you have that true religion that reaches out to the fatherless and to the widows? Then there was the test of works in chapter 2 where James says, if your faith is real, it will prove itself in works because faith without works is dead. And then there was the tongue in chapter 3. The tongue can be a destructive force and being able to control the tongue is a test of the transformation that will have been taking place in your life through your faith in Jesus Christ. And now here at the end of chapter 3, there's another test of living faith and that is the kind of wisdom that you exhibit. And in order to fully understand what James is saying in chapter 4, which is my brief, You've got to look back to these closing verses, which is, I write, which is why I read them just a moment ago, which, verses which deal with this topic of wisdom. And for James, wisdom is an important concept. Wisdom is evidence of what kind of person you are. Wisdom does not mean knowledge. Even with all my experience, if I knew everything that there is to know about the Bible, and don't get me wrong, I certainly don't, that would not make me a wise person. What would make me a wise person, according to James, is how I apply that knowledge so that with God's help, I can go on to transform my life into a life that pleases God. Wisdom is not what I know. Wisdom is how I live. So for James, that is the importance of wisdom. But he goes on to describe two different types of wisdom, just to be clear as to what he's talking about. He points out that there are two types of wisdom that need to be carefully distinguished. And only one of those types of wisdom will have a positive, good result. We can either choose the wisdom that comes from heaven, the wisdom of God, or we can choose the wisdom that does not come from heaven, the wisdom which is earthly, worldly. Each of those two wisdoms has distinctive characteristics and each has distinct results. And James tells us several things about the worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the earth. First of all, he says, it is characterized by bitter envy or bitter jealousy. It's all about self-centeredness, a self-centeredness that produces uh, basically a resentful attitude to everyone else. One example might be resenting other people's successes, being jealous of their achievements, resenting perhaps their popularity or their role in the church. You know, why don't I get the kinds of opportunities that other people get? What have they got that I haven't got? In other words, human wisdom is self-focused. It's all about me. And it not only breeds bitter envy, James says, it also leads to selfish ambition. And that can easily create rivalry. The kind of attitude that says, you know, I don't want to be outdone. 
I want to keep one step ahead of that other person and do whatever means, do whatever things that enables that to happen. To put it simply, James says that wisdom that is not from God is selfish. It is self-centered. It's consumed with the struggle to fulfill your own ego. It has as its goal personal gratification at any cost. When, add, when you add all this up, you know, what do you get? Well, James says that all these unpleasant characteristics result in one thing. Disorder and every evil practice. Earthly wisdom brings disorder, it brings disturbance. And James goes on to develop that in chapter 4 by giving a real-life example what was happening amongst those Christians to whom he was writing. Disorder, disturbance, disarray had crept into their relationships with their fellow Christians, resulting in, he says, wars and fighting. You'd hope that that was just an isolated situation, wouldn't you? It just affected these Christians that James was writing to. But actually, if you look back at what Paul had said in his second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. I fear that there may be discord, note the vocabulary, similar to James, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. It was creeping into the churches everywhere. And it's something that we, as Christians in our respective churches, need to be aware of. Selfish ambition can lead to disorder in the church. And so James asks this rhetorical question, verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes wars? What causes these fightings among you? And his answer is clear. They come, he says, from your passions that are at war in your members. What are those passions? Well, surely they're the very things that he's been talking about in chapter 3. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And all of this, he says, is hostile to God because it is not the wisdom that comes from heaven. It's the wisdom of the world. And James expresses the view when he says in verse 4 that that friendship with the world is hostility with God. If you embrace worldly wisdom as a friend then you need to realize that you're opposing God and the wisdom that comes from him. Now James develops that idea further in verse 2 of chapter 4 when he says that you desire and you do not have. So you kill. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and wage war. What he's saying is that you're jealous. You are so envious that you want what others have and you want it so badly that when you don't get it, you fight and you 
enter into a kind of warfare with one another. There is this conflict, this hostility, this anger, the business, bitterness, and all that kind of stuff. Now that may sound a little bit over the top. When was the last time a church member here at PBC came to blows with a fellow church member or even murdered them? Well, I haven't heard it. A few wry smiles. Maybe you know more than I do. I know church meetings can get occasionally a bit lively, to put it nicely. But that's unheard of for us to actually start throwing punches at one another. I think what we need to understand is that what James is doing here is is using hyperbole. He's using these exaggerated statements in order to express the seriousness as far as God is concerned when Christians come into conflict with one another. He wants the church to realize that their conduct is wrong and it needs to change. They need to overcome their sinful passions. They need to overcome their sinful, selfish desires, their selfish ambition. And we all need to rid ourselves of the attitude that says, I know what is best, and I want my way, and I'm going to get it any way I can, and I will oppose anyone who says differently. Because the problem with that attitude is that when you don't get your own way, you fight harder. And when you fight harder, you're leaving God out of the equation. James says, you give up praying. You ignore it. And even when you do pray that God will give you what you want, he doesn't. Prayer remains unanswered because the motives and the attitudes are all wrong. Those attitudes have to be dealt with if you want to establish or re-establish the line of communication with God. You see, James has a, a very real pastoral concern for the people that he's writing to because it's evident that despite their profession of faith, there are signs that they are lapsing into unhealthy conduct. They're becoming friends of the world. They're adopting the wisdom of the earth, of the world. Hence, they are in hostility with God. We, like them, dear friends, need to realize that really this battle is one that's going on in our minds and hearts. It's the battle between the exercise of worldly wisdom, the wisdom that the devil will try to encourage us to employ. Notice James has said in verse 15 in chapter 3 that all this comes from the devil. It's demonic. A battle between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of heaven that God wants us to exercise. And that battle has to be fought by us individually and it has to be won for the sake of God, for the sake of the church and for our own spiritual growth into maturity. You know, there's a God-given wisdom and it's our responsibility to live by it. And we will never be able to live by it unless our lives are constantly kept in a right relationship with God. But here is the good news. Chapter 4, verse 6. 
God is on our side in this battle for the mind. James says, God gives more grace. We must look to him for greater help in that battle. And when we do, God will give us that greater grace. With God's help, we need to recover that sense of humility rather than that spirit of arrogance. With God's help, we need to resist the devil's influence in our life when he tries to get us to exercise worldly wisdom. We need to draw near to God again and again, aiming to re-establish that intimacy with him that we so desperately need, an intimacy which will promote our growth into maturity. And when we do, God will draw near to us, giving us that extra grace. We have to live differently, and we can do that by rejecting the wisdom of the world and by adopting the wisdom that comes from heaven. We have to abandon selfish ambition. We have to abandon self-gratification in favor of selfless humility. Humility. Notice these final imperatives in chapter 4 from verse 7 onwards. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In other words, we must repent of our sinful motives, our sinful conduct. We have to turn away from bitter envy and jealousy and ambition. We have to resist the devil's temptations, surrender to God's will, and humble ourselves before God. Remember what James has said in verse 6. He says that God gives grace not to the proud, but to whom? To the humble to the person whose life is rooted in God's purposes rather than in our own selfish interests. I'm sure many of you in conclusion will remember the story that Jesus told of the two men who decided to build a house, the wise and the foolish builders. One built his house on the rock, one built his house on the sand and when the storms and when the floods came, the house that built, was built on the sand fell flat. That story takes on a kind of poignancy, doesn't it, in the events of this past week. For those of you that have experienced the flooding here in Poynton and those particularly who are residents in Whaley Bridge with the threat of that dam collapsing due to the adverse weather conditions. What differentiated those two men who built houses? Well, it was how they responded to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, it's the wise person who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In James's terminology, that person is the doer of the word and not a hearer only. That person is the one who adopts the wisdom of heaven and allows that wisdom to regulate his or her life accordingly. If you wanted to build your own house, I'm sure you'd go to your friendly local architect who'd be only too pleased to help you. 
he would draw up a design with all his professional expertise and knowledge. But if that person, you for example, decided that you weren't going to take his advice, you weren't going to follow his plans, you were going to build it according to your own designs and your own ideas, rather than the plan of the professional architect, the risk is that the result would be potential, potential disaster. So it is in building our life. God is the architect. And we would be an absolute fool if we decided to build it any other way than the way God has purposed, the way God has planned, the way God has designed how our life is to be built. If you're a true child of God, you will find yourself committing, committed to seeing God build your life the way he wants to build it because that is the way of true wisdom let's pray fathers we just pause for a moment to allow your word to speak clearly and audibly to us whatever we as individuals need to do this coming week in response to what we have heard this morning. We pray that you will give us the grace to be able to do it. If we have to admit that we have fallen out with one or more of our fellow Christians, if our relationships have been soured, for whatever reason, we pray that you will help us to extend the olive branch and to seek reconciliation and peace. Because being peacemakers is what it's all about. If we have been guilty of selfish ambition, if we've been guilty of envy or jealousy, then we're sorry and we just ask that you will help us to put things right. That we will turn afresh to your word and to the challenges that it presents to us. That we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, we thank you for being amongst us this morning. Send us out from here desirous of growing in the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.